yeah, some people could describe me as a workaholic or passionate or community uh, centered. All those are true. But the underlying motivation I learned later from therapy was the failure demons. I had to achieve. I just had to. Our guest in this episode of The Dialogue is author, entrepreneur, retired executive, and ALF Class 18 senior fellow, Eddie Garcia. Eddie's new book, Summer in the Waiting Room, Faith, Hope, Love, tells the incredible story of his journey to overcome his fear of failure, his drive to succeed, and the sudden heart attack that left him clinging to life in the midst of his career. Eddie gives us a first-hand account of his health crisis and describes how the love of his family and a journey of faith led to him sharing his story. Welcome to The Dialogue. All right, we'll dive right into the questions. And so um, uh, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how that might have influenced your career path, any decisions you made about your trajectory. Well, I grew up in East San Jose, a working class family. My, my dad was uh, worked for the post office. Uh, my mom uh, worked as a teacher's aide. Uh, uh, my, my dad had some very uh, uh, solid and strict values, which was work hard, play by the rules, and uh, don't mess with anybody, right? Treat people kindly. Uh, and if they don't treat you that way, then let it go and keep moving forward. Uh, my mom was a, a very faithful person. She had a strong faith, almost in every conversation you had with her, it would begin with or end with gracias a Dios, which is thank God. Thank God. Uh, we didn't, uh, again, my dad worked for the post office. My mom was a teacher's aide. There were six kids. Uh, we lived in a small 900 square foot house with one bathroom. Uh, and we, we didn't have a lot of bells and whistles in life. We, we didn't have all the cool stuff that, that other kids and other people had. Uh, but we had the basics. We had a, a safe place to live. We had a warm dinner, hot dinner every night and the weekends, a hot breakfast and a hot lunch. And uh, we had everything we needed, uh, not a whole bunch of what we wanted. And that was a very strong lesson to learn. Again, back to my dad real quickly. He, he was, the, you got to get it done, work hard, do what you got to do. You can be better than you are. Move forward. That was my dad. Cut and dry, really simple. My mom, because of her faith, was it's always going to work out. Don't worry about it. Put it into God's hands. It's going to work out. So uh, that combination is my wife, Sandra. Sandra, Sandra is, and, and I've told her this too. I said, Sandra, you, you, you are like an exact combo of my mom and dad. And, and, and you always hear these stories while well, you're marrying your mom and or for a woman, you're marrying your dad. Well, I married both of them. And, and she has been like the steady rock in my entire life. Uh, one of the stories that I talk about in the book is uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to San Jose State. And uh, I was the only one of my friends 
Uh, my older brothers and sisters had gone to college, so it was an expectation. And uh, I failed miserably. Uh, within three semesters, I had flunked out. Uh, and and it, was, uh, it was a life-changing moment for me. And my dad was disappointed, uh, didn't say a word when I broke the news, uh, kind of shook his head in disapproval and walked away. And my mom said, mijo, it's going to be okay. You're going to figure a way through this. You've got God on your side. And, and so uh, when uh, I proposed to Sandra, uh, she had already finished college. She uh, uh, was beginning a career as a teacher. And I proposed to her and she says, absolutely, let's get married. I'm in love with you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But you got to finish college. The second chapter in your book is titled 48 Viewmont Avenue. Uh, and it's a reference to the, the, the home you grew up in here in East San Jose. What was the significance of that, of that time and place for you? 48 Viewmont Avenue was home, right? Even though I left in my 20s after I got married, it was home. Um, and the uh, best way to illustrate this is when I was. Uh, working with the therapist, she said, you know, I, I want you, when we, we're working on mindfulness practices, right? Let's, let's, let's focus right now and, and just focus on this moment and take yourself to a safe place. Where, where's that safe place? And, and just, just enjoy it and, and feel it and be there. When I was done, she asked, where was it? And I said, laying on the floor in front of the TV at the house I grew up in. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a working class neighborhood that were, you know, I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, where kids are running around the streets and everybody's having a ball. It was just a wonderful place to grow up, right? And I learned there, all those values I mentioned at the very beginning, all the values I mentioned, so, so 48 Viewmont set the stage for how I was going to conduct myself in the future. The resilience, the working hard, the, the treat people kindly, play by the rules. And it took a lot of years, like a massive heart attack and a, a lung failure for me to get and have God part of your life. But that's where it all started. Everything that I feel and live today started at Viewmont Avenue, 48 Viewmont Avenue. You've talked about the fear of failure uh, that you've struggled with much of your life. Where do you think this comes from? And 
what have you done to to overcome it in your life? What are the steps you've taken to work through that that fear? Uh, I did something that was very unusual for a Latino. Uh, I went to therapy, but in therapy, I, we we meaning my uh, psychologist and I, I think we found the the foundation of the failure. Uh, and in high school, uh, I discovered a couple of things. Uh, I, I discovered that uh, I really loved sports and I was pretty good at sports. Uh, I was MVP of the JV baseball team. I was uh, uh, most inspirational of the varsity basketball team. I was my senior year in high school. I was captain of both varsity and uh, uh, varsity basketball and baseball teams. So, so up until that point, up until graduation day, I, you know, I was, everything was just fine. The world was perfect. Uh, I was, I at least thought I was good at everything. Uh, and, and that is a combination of my dad instilling that drive in me and my mom saying, keep, be, you're the best. You keep doing it. You can do this. So when I got to college, a couple of things happened. Uh, one is... Uh, it was the first time, really the first time, I left the cocoon of my house and the cocoon of East San Jose. I used to take the bus uh, from uh, our neighborhood down up, you know, down Ellen Rock Avenue to downtown to take uh, to go to school. And you know, I went to school in 1981, so the population uh, of San Jose State at the time wasn't as diverse as it is today. There were very few Latino students. Uh, uh, in my classes and very few on campus. And I, I think I just got totally intimidated. I, I wasn't that big, you know, big man on campus anymore. Uh, and then when I flunked out, uh, it was to me the first and most dramatic failure in my life. And, and so uh, I, I did at that point, begin to say to myself, I can't ever do this again. I'm never going to fail again. And, and so those failure demons haunted me for the rest of my, my, my adult life until pretty recently. Um, when, when I uh, had my heart transplant in 2020, uh, April of 2020, I went into a deep funk uh, while in the hospital. And that's not unusual. Uh, I read a stat from the American Heart Association that uh, something like 63% of heart transplant recipients uh, within the first one to five years uh, developed some sort of anxiety or depression or both. And, and I was hit with both very hard. And the thing that hit me the hardest was that I was a failure, that everything I had done in my career, the successes I, the successes I had in uh, uh, community leadership and public life, all that was immediately uh, erased in the hospital at Stanford. And um, the failure demons came roaring back and haunted me really, really bad. Um, it was then that uh, uh, at Sandra's urging, I, uh, I took advantage of 
the transplant team at Kaiser Santa Clara has an in-house uh, psychologist uh, for the for the team. And so I took advantage of that and started working with a therapist. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not afraid to fail anymore. What advice would you have for anyone who could probably benefit from from that sort of help? Because uh, I think that's a really important thing to to, to mention. So I think it should be a, a I think it should be a public policy that mental health is included in all insurance plans. With that said, I, I really went on a journey um, uh, after my heart attack in 2010, and then it intensified after transplant in 2020. I went on a really deep dive spiritual journey. So, so I'm a Catholic, and so I went into a deep dive into my faith. And, and it, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have a belief in a God or a belief in a higher power. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you have to have a belief in something, I think. Something more than uh, everything that's thrown at us every single day. So, so one of the things I learned that's common throughout, because my faith journey uh, and my spiritual journey, I, I read about Buddha, I read about Islam, I read about Hinduism, Sikhism. There's a common thread through all of that. And, and the, the, the biggest common thread is something I first learned about and heard at ALF. Um, yeah, it, it was at the time, I didn't quite understand it. But I do understand now. And one of the key components to the ALF experience was being present, right? Being present. And, you know, we hear that all the time everywhere. And I, I, I didn't know what that meant, right? Because my mind was always on the next move, the next project, the next something, the next this, the next that. I never understood the concept of being present. But it's a powerful, powerful concept. Becoming the success that you did in in the private sector, and moving up the ladder and up the ranks as you were through through your professional experience, was it a was it a, a leap to say now it's time to get back to the community, or was it always there, or was it imperative? How did you make that connection? Um, what brought you there? Or was it just something you had to do? Yeah, that that actually started uh, working. One of one of my first no, not one of my first. My first job out of college after I graduated uh, was uh, working for Blanca Alvarado, who is I think she's LF class three, maybe or two, maybe one for all I know. But she's an icon in uh, not only the Latino community; she's an icon in Silicon Valley. 
And uh, I started my post-college career working for Blanca. And I was immediately hooked, immediately hooked. First of all, she is, uh, I still will say this, and uh, I know I, I have a lot of friends out in the political world, uh, but I think she is the most articulate, eloquent thinker and speaker in local politics anywhere. That's just, she's amazing, right? And I saw her be able to create opportunities for the community that were just truly amazing. And uh, I thought, okay, this is good. This, this, this is good. I want to do this too. And, and so my work, I started working on boards while I was working in her office. Uh, the, the first board I sat on was uh, the, the San Jose Historical Museum Association, uh, which, is, which is the predecessor of History San Jose. And uh, I, I have a history degree, so there was a passion there. And, and uh, I, I was hooked at that point. So it was always part of me. And as I started moving up in my career and had access to more resources, uh, my mind started expanding about different ways I can help the community. Uh, I, I love rolling up my sleeves and, and being right down there. Uh, but I also said, thought to myself, hey, we've got resources that I could come play in a different role. So in my role at Comcast, both as a director and then later as a vice president, uh, I was able to uh, uh, move Comcast dollars, investment dollars uh, that met Comcast community investment needs with community needs. And, and it was right around that time that I began, began to get involved with ALF. And, and so ALF took me over the top. Uh, it, it, it really did. It, it, it's coming down that hill. I can see, I can see the, the redwood trees right around me right now where I thought, wow, this is it. This could be it. And, and that's, that's where I really started turning my community activism into overdrive. Your book, Summer in the Waiting Room, Faith, Hope, Love, centers on, on the heart attack you suffered in 2010. What was your life like in the days leading up to the up to that moment? What what was what was life like right before the heart attack and then during the heart attack and after? You know, it's full blast. That's the best way I can describe it. My life was being full blast, burning the candle, not on two ends, but on four ends. That was my life. Uh, I, I literally kept myself going with uh, double vanilla lattes at Starbucks. Uh, I would feel I would have one in the morning after having some breakfast at home. I'd have one in the morning on the way to work. I would have one sometime in the afternoon, and before the evening closed out, I'd have one, especially if there were night meetings or community gatherings. And, and so I was running on empty. I was running on fumes. Yeah, some people could describe me as a workaholic or passionate or community-centered. Uh, All those are true, but the underlying motivation 
I learned later from therapy was the failure demons. I had to achieve. I just had to. That was like that was life on June 6, 2010. So on June 7th, I'm in the morning like I usually do. And um, don't feel right. Uh, later that uh, evening, I go to the emergency room. And at that time, doctors are saying, you're having a massive heart attack. Uh, I go immediately into surgery. Uh, come out of surgery, I'm okay, but my heart is heavily, heavily damaged. Uh, Ten days later, uh, while still in the hospital, uh, actually in the ICU, uh, my heart stopped beating. It flatlined. Doctors had to shock me back to life, shock my my heart back uh, into rhythm. Then what happens next is that my lungs stopped working. I contracted something called acute respiratory distress syndrome. There's no cure for it. And really, either you come out of it or you don't. You know, there's a three in 10 chance I don't come out of this. And, and my heart is heavily damaged. So I'm in really bad shape. Uh, they put me on full life support. They uh, gave me a, a strong set of uh, muscle relaxing medication to essentially paralyze my body. Uh, and the third thing they did is they heavily sedated me. So I was medically induced into a coma. I'm in this state for about six weeks. And when I emerge, uh, absolutely confused. And because of the muscle relaxing medication, I can't move anything. Uh, the, the only thing I could move was my head about an inch off the pillow. So, so my muscles had completely fallen asleep. My uh, throat muscles fell asleep, so I couldn't eat. Uh, I was uh, um, on a liquid diet. And my vocal cords fell asleep because of the tube that was in my throat and because of the, the medication. And so I couldn't talk. Um, I spent the latter part of the summer uh, rehabbing uh, from uh, all of the damage that was done to me. My lungs miraculously cleared out, and um, I went uh, in uh, September. I, I did three weeks of super intense rehab to get myself to actually stand up, move a little, uh, swallow and eat. Uh, you know, started putting my life back together. So that's the summer part. a large uh, extended Latino family. In pure Latino fashion, they absolutely took over the waiting room. 
they, they, uh, the, the best way to picture it, if, it's, if you can think of a large family in a family room on a weekend visiting. So there were, there was someone in every chair in the waiting room. It's not a large waiting room. There are blankets and pillows uh, all over the floor. Uh, there are stacks of water and soda and juices off in one corner. And, um, and there's food coming in all day because uh, we have an extended uh, uh, network of friends that would come in and check on Sandra and the girls literally all day long. And, and so the waiting room was like a party. Uh, I, I say like, God, man, I missed one of the best family parties there ever was because it lasted for 85 days. They were literally there for 85 days. And, and, and so that's one part of the waiting room. The other part is uh, that group of people and people that came in went through heartache, pain, suffering, uh, uh, hope, hopelessness, all wrapped together day after day, night after night. Um, and, and Sandra was the, the one of my brothers-in-law, uh, described her as the captain of the ship. She was uh, literally in the ICU with me all the time. Uh, she slept in a cot next to me in the ICU for those 85 days. And, and she, would, uh, uh, she would go to the JW house, walk around out older, right there on the stamp, uh, Santa Clara campus, and take a shower and get back into my room by the time doctors made their morning rounds. And she would get the, the full briefing, ask tons of questions, and then walk out to the waiting room and give a report. And uh, she did the same thing during the evening rounds. And, and so when things looked really dire, uh, she would go out, report out in a very stoic, a matter of fact way. She also, like my mom, is very faithful and let everybody know everything is going to be okay. And uh, there would be tears and hugs and confusion and anger. And she was the one that would settle everybody down and then go back into the room and make sure I was okay. And there were two times that, that uh, one of uh, uh, our, our spiritual advisor is a Catholic uh, Monsignor that we've known for many, many years. Uh, he actually came in twice to uh, deliver the last rites. Uh, so it was a very crazy summer uh, in that waiting room. You were in the you were in the hospital bed. This, these are things that you've taken from stories from your family. As you that's correct. About that's it. correct. Yeah. Uh, a ton of first person interviews from for with every person that I could get to that step foot in that waiting room. I interviewed uh, for the first part of my book is essentially my memoir up until the day of the heart attack. So I interviewed my brothers and sisters, friends uh, uh, for that piece. Uh, Sandra kept a journal during that summer. So I relied on her, uh, as a primary source. 
And then uh, I was able to uh, acquire uh, my medical record from uh, June to September 2010. And it's about 2,900 pages long. And so I combined all of those sources into creating a story that, uh, that I wasn't really there. So because I, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't know. All I knew, I was in the hospital for a long, long time. And talking with the doctors, I, I knew technically what happened to me. But I wanted to know what happened, right? And, and so I decided to start a blog. And, and as I was interviewing and looking at my hospital records and reading Sandra's journal, I started doing these 1,100-word posts. And so from 2014 on, I'm doing sometimes weekly posts, right? Weekly posts and, and just really getting myself immersed in the story. And right around 2018, four years of doing this, uh, I stopped doing it because um, my heart had reached a point where it wasn't uh, going to work anymore. And so I began the process for a transplant evaluation. And then I forgot about it. And uh, I, after the transplant, uh, I started feeling better. Uh, I was being more energetic. And my mother-in-law, uh, who's a wonderful person, said, hey, what happened to the book? And I said, oh, so I don't know. So, so I went and I looked at, uh, I, I, even though I wrote the, the, uh, the blog posts, on the blog, I kept it in a running uh, 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 Word document. And I realized I had written 90,000 words. That's a book, right? And, and, and I got to the end. The only piece left was to try to describe my spiritual journey. And so uh, in the course of about eight or nine months, I, I did that last piece. And uh, that, that's how it happened. The title of your book includes the words faith, hope, and love. And they're prominent themes throughout. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the, what the role of each of those concepts played in your journey? Yeah, faith, hope, and love. That I, that's, that's another concept that I totally live my life by now. So, so it comes from, uh, and it's a direct quote from uh, St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, he essentially says, leading up to the phrase, he says, no matter what happens in this world, no matter how hard it gets, there's always three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So during my research for the spiritual side of the book, when I read that, I just like, this is it. This is it. And, and so faith is, is real simple. It's just acceptance of what is. Um, from a Christian Catholic viewpoint, it's acceptance of God. It's God's will. That's totally my mom, right? So, so acceptance of what is. And, and, and I truly believe that that's a key to anything, whether you're in business, in education, in politics, community service. The first step is accepting the way things are. Because once you can do that, then you can move forward. And, and your second piece is hope. And hope is a very powerful concept. If you look up hope in the dictionary, it's kind of like want, I want, I wish. 
which is totally against any spiritual uh, faith uh, teaching is, is desire and want, right? Decided to do a deep dive into what is that? What does hope mean? And I found that again with St. Paul's letters, uh, where he says that, that hope is a combination of three things. It begins with suffering, which is like, what? <laughs> how, how, to hopeful things, what suffering? What are you talking about, right? But he talks about, he says, rejoice in your suffering, which is even weirder. What? Rejoice in suffering. He said, because suffering leads to endurance, right? And endurance is what gives you the, the, the strength to keep moving forward, again, in any part of your life, right? Even if you're not uh, 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 of one faith or the other. Endurance is a very powerful concept. And endurance leads to character. And, and, and I'm a, a big student of history, and character has got, got to be in the top three, right? If not the top one of being a leader, right? So, so suffering leads to endurance, leads to character. And once you have those three, you have hope that things are going to be okay. participate in class 18, which started in 2006, ALF Silicon Valley is now going into their 35th year. What advice would you have from folks who were considering and, and maybe new participants? Uh, for, for those considering uh, and, and new participants, I guess for both this would, would, would um, apply is it's once a month, all day, one day, once a month. And then you've got a week in the mountains, 17 days of your life, right? Give it your all. Just, just toss yourself in there. Just give it your all because what you're going to gain from that is invaluable as you move forward. You know, there's, there's a few things that I turn back and look at uh, in my life where I turn to time and time again, you know, my mom and dad. And, and I do find myself uh, subconsciously turning to ALF a lot, um, uh, especially as I'm thinking about community work. Uh, being in the present, uh, being a servant leader. That's such a powerful, powerful notion. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those catchphrases, right? Our catch, two words, catchphrases right now, servant leadership, right? But, but it's, it's, if you really practice it, it's amazingly powerful. And, and so for anyone who's considering ALF or who's just started ALF, Keep those things on your on the top of your mind. Give it your all because you're you're gonna know that at the end these will be ideas and concepts that stick with you for the rest of your life and the rest of your career. And for people who are just newly senior, uh, senior fellows, servant leadership, servant leadership, servant leadership. With, whether you're a CEO or a nonprofit executive director, try to keep that always on your mind because when things get hectic, right? Because the world loves to do that to us. The, the world just has a ton of wrenches. They like to just throw at us, right? And if you have these basics, stay in the moment, stay right here, and how am I going to serve as a leader? So that's how I would do it. That's what I would advise. 
Again, the title of, uh, of Eddie's book is Summer in the Waiting Room, Faith, Hope, Love. What, do you, what are your hopes for your book? What do you want folks to take away? You know, what, what's the big takeaway you want folks to have from it? If there's one thing, one thing, and, and it's, it's not the entire uh, phrase from uh, the first letter of the Corinthians, it's the second word, hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. No matter what happens, and I truly believe that. I really truly believe that. Because there's going to be suffering. You can get through it. It's going to build your character. And then there's always hope. Whether you're running a company or whether you're fighting for your life in the ICU, it's the same thing. And as we wrap up, what's next for you? You, you mentioned working again with LLA. Yeah, I'm doing some work with yeah. LLA. Uh, uh, I, I'm doing a, a little bit of consulting work with the Foundation for Hispanic Education. That's uh, uh, they run three charters, Latino charter high schools. Uh, I, I'm doing some uh, some leadership work with their student councils. It's kind of fun, and um, you know, I, I really uh, welcome and am grateful for this opportunity because I, I want to talk about hope to people, and and, and I do want to talk about heart health. Uh, and with a particular focus is it's always been in my life with the Latino community. Um, uh, it, it's really important. So uh, as long as I get opportunities to talk about uh, my story, uh, to help uh, educate and, and hopefully inspire others, then uh, I hope that's in my future. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us your time. Thanks for joining ALF on the podcast. It was great. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org. This podcast was made possible by the ALF Silicon Valley Network. With a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2022 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Cisco, Sobrato Philanthropies, Silverlake, ALF Class 18, Adobe, Deloitte, and HP Inc. Thank you.